Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In this podcast, our host Derek O'Reilly will visit seven places of special interest in London. We start at the London Silver Vaults in Holborn, which boasts 29 specialist shops, each one a treasure trove of beautifully crafted antiques, modern jewellery and silver. We also join Derek at the Chelsea Physic Garden, which has been located in Chelsea since 1673. The garden was first established by the apothecaries, for growing plants and medical research. Another five fascinating places are also uncovered in the podcast. My first stop today is with head gardener Nick Bailey of Chelsea Physic Garden. Chelsea Physic Garden has been here since 1673 and it was established by the Society of Apothecaries to train young physicians in the identification and use of medicinal plants. And one of the first uh, physicians to train here was Sir Hans Sloane, who went off and made his fortune, returned to London, bought the borough of Chelsea, including the Physic Garden, and decided to rent it back to the apothecaries in perpetuity. And it was written in such a clever way that that agreement still stands to this day. So we still pay a peppercorn rent to his descendant, Lord Cadogan, of uh, £5 a year. Every plant grown in the garden is useful in some way or another and that's part of the decree laid down by Sir Hans Sloan. And we focus on medicinal plant species, both historic and, uh, and plants that are used today. So we've got a useful garden and that has plants associated with perfumery, with the arts, with dyes, with fabrics, with housing, with science and research, with hygiene and cosmetics, with land restoration. The primary remit of the garden has always been education, so for 340 years it's been focused on teaching people about plants, which we hope to continue to do today. We run a, a Walks, Talks and Workshops programme year-round in the garden, uh, and we aim to engage as, as broad an audience as possible, so from kids of four years old up to adults and retirees. And we also have some active research at the garden, so we work with Queen Charlotte University and several other universities, so we've got ongoing uh, research programmes with them. 
We grow about 5,000 uh, plant species in the garden and they cover about 210 different countries from around the world. So we strive to create all these different growing environments. So we have a, a tropical growing space, we have a, we have a desert growing space, uh, we have a large cool fernery which deals with many of the sort of uh, damp or moisture or high humidity uh, loving plants. Perhaps the most extraordinary plant in the garden is a grapefruit which fruits for us year round, it's totally unprotected uh, and produces a, a reasonable edible fruit. You've got a slightly thicker pith than you normally would have on a tropically grown grapefruit and that's because it protects itself from the cold by producing that extra thick skin. Sitting in the, the heart of the garden is our pond rockery. It's said to be the oldest rock garden in Europe. It's quite extraordinary. And we have a collection of Mediterranean plants growing all the way around it. Uh, and the stones which make it up are really quite interesting. Some of them are a larval rock from Iceland, which the uh, famed plant collector Joseph Banks used as ballast in his boat uh, on, a, on a trip there and then donated them to the garden. I think perhaps the most extraordinary thing in there, however, is uh, pieces of carved stone from the, uh, the original Tower of London, so it's quite a special thing. The garden overall really is perhaps London's best kept secret. It's tucked away behind uh, walls, almost four acres of, of garden, and uh, people can pass it by for years without knowing that there's this lush, leafy oasis uh, hidden away behind the walls. And those walls actually are one of our huge advantages as, as a garden. They create an extraordinary microclimate, which means we're able to grow species here that uh, virtually the rest of the UK wouldn't be able to grow. And so we have the advantages of the, the heat island effect of London, our own walls, the thermals which come up from the river, the fact that the site is south-facing and very free-draining, and it means we can grow plants from virtually every corner of the world. Next, Derek is in Southwark visiting the old operating theatre in Herb Garrett. He spoke to the theatre's education officer, Gareth Mars. I'm fascinated by this room that we're in. What can you tell us about it? Well, this is um, the old operating theatre of uh, St Thomas's Hospital. It dates back to 1822 and it's one of the few uh, surviving operating theatres pre-anaesthetic and also before we kind of know any knowledge of germs. It is in fact the oldest operating theatre in Europe. You can see it's mostly made out of woods, not the most cleanest of materials. Uh, you'd have had these stands here packed with medical students uh, who were learning about surgery by watching operations taking place. But you could have up to about 100, 125 students crammed into this theatre. So all these students would be in their street clothes, uh, some of them could have bad colds, bad coughs, or they could be sneezing, coughing into this room, feeling the air uh, full of um, germs as well. So the key thing about uh, surgery for anaesthetic is um, speed, to get the operations with over as quickly as possible to minimise the pain of the patients. But from the records we have uh, from this period of this theatre, so it's about um, 40 years, the survival rate we kind of uh, think is about one in three people would have survived an operation. This operating table, it's one of our kind of prize exhibits um, here. This is an uh, original 19th century um, table. There's not many of these uh, around at all. Tell me about this. This looks fascinating. Well, this is an original kind of 19th century uh, amputation kit. What we have here is um, the amputation knives. 
Of course, we have the, the bone saw here, which like your uh, common saw you get uh, today oh. to saw through the bone. You thought that was for wood, didn't you? Oh, I was hopeful. <laughs> and you'd have the tourniquet, um, which is, of course, used to stop blood loss. And we have this instrument here, which are your bone nippers. And oh, this right. is just to nip away any bits of the splintered bone. And you'd also have your uh, tweezers here. These would just be there to just pull out the arteries, the veins of the leg as wow. tight as possible, knotted together, then all kind of bundled up, and then it's going to be stitched with a fine piece of horsehair. The operating day here is a Friday, so they are very much fewer than um, today. And we don't have electricity at this time, so natural light is kind of crucial. Yeah. You've got the gas lamps here, which are going to provide a, a, a kind of a backup kind of light. We'd have the surgeon, of course, uh, and um, going back to the hygiene issue, um, the surgeon is going to have to protect his own clothes. It's almost kind of like a pride thing for the surgeon. You know, he's got his students here, and he's kind of showing off how many operations he's done. They're very skilled surgeons. There is this kind of misconception, I think, that uh, surgery is kind of akin to butchery at this time. Uh, but uh, the surgeons, you know, they are very well qualified, very kind of knowledgeable about um, surgery. But of course, uh, dealing with the limitations about no anaesthetic, and uh, also, you know, they don't know anything about germs. So people are dying of infection, but they don't know the reasons. Next to the old operating theatre is the Herb Garrett. The garret would have held all the ingredients necessary to make up all of the medicines required by the patients next door. And while not quite as bloody and gruesome, there are some equally interesting and disturbing methods used to aid the needy. The Herb Garret was run by the Chief Apothecary of St Thomas's Hospital. He was the Chief Resident Medical Officer responsible not only for compounding medicines, but for the diagnosis and the treatment for all non-surgical patients. He would have been responsible for paying for all the drugs needed by the hospital out of his own fees. And this was the way the governors used to manage and limit the cost of healthcare. And while a good idea in principle, there were complaints the apothecary made savings on the drugs bill at the expense of the medicines he made. The apothecary was the term used to describe what we would now refer to as a chemist or pharmacist and St Thomas has employed its first apothecary in 1566 and its last in 1871, when the role of senior medical officer was transferred to the assistant physician. Silver's still a great thing. It's one of our most precious metals. It's one of our most important industries. The reason why people buy British silver is because we introduced a hallmarking system that was effectively the first customer guarantee system anywhere in the world. And working in silver, you naturally gravitate towards the silver vaults because this is the hub of all of the things that, you know, we do in this business. What hit me when I first came was the, the selection. You know, having been in the antique business most of my life, I couldn't believe how vast it was. The London Silver Vaults is the largest stock of silver anywhere in the world. We get inquiries for everything. The oldest silver that I know of here would be Elizabethan. Some vaults might have something even older. And funnily enough, I find that the older the silver, the less one needs to polish it. Can you just tell me a little bit about this piece, please? Well, this is the oldest piece in the shop. It's from the time of Queen Anne, 1705, over 300 years old. 
and it's a little porridge bowl or soup bowl and it is Britannia standard silver and instead of having the lion uh, it has Britannia with her standard on the hallmarks. Take a look. I think it's beautiful and I'd rather like to have a pair. I'm afraid I can't help you there because it's a one-off. Oh, so if we bought that, that would be it. There wouldn't be anywhere else to find another one. Then I must have it. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't go sort of trekking around Chile. You couldn't sort of buy a new BMW. You know, people spent money on houses, furniture, paintings, silver, servants. Here we've got place settings to demonstrate the last 300 years of silver design. Okay. Joel, can I ask you a question? Do you have a favourite? If I said to you now to sit at this table, where would you sit? Gosh, um, truly I'd, I'd want to do that occasion. That would be your favourite? For fun, yes. I think that would be for me as well, I have to say. I've been here now for 36, 37 years. And what made you go into this business? Well, I've always been attracted. I always find it's a lovely, interesting, fascinating business. You're always learning, and one meets interesting people as well. No two days are the same, and I really love coming to work because I never know who I'm going to meet. We get a lot of quite famous film stars, people you see, celebrities in the paper, some very famous actors, and as a royal watcher, it's heaven. The old silver, how that's made is it's hammered out of one sheet of metal by hand. And when later on in the 20th century, they used to use a lot of spinning on machines. And of course, you can get the same sort of look, but the hammering of a metal makes the, makes the metal hard. Silver was expensive in the 18th century because of the metal and the labor was cheap. Right. Nowadays, the metal in that would be, say, 150 pounds, but the labor involved would be six times the price. We do get a lot of tourists down here. They want to come and see a lot of fabulous things in one place. But a lot of people do come down to buy significant presents. I always say to people, I don't sell investment jewellery, I sell pleasure. And if somebody can get pleasure from the piece of jewellery which we have, I'm happy. I'm in the East End of London. You wouldn't believe it. I'm in this calm, peaceful oasis that is Tower Hamlet Cemetery. An incredible place. My name's Kenneth Greenway, and I'm the manager here at Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park, and I work for the charity that care for the site. We're just behind Mile End Tube Station, literally a short five-minute walk. Now, standing here, you would never guess you were a five-minute walk from Mile End Tube Station. I mean, the environment here is fantastic. What can you tell me about the history of this cemetery? Historically, we're a closed cemetery. We're one of London's Magnificent Seven, so most people have heard of Highgate, Nunhead, Kensal Green, Brompton, West Norwood and Abney Park. We're the least well-known and often the last to be visited, but it makes us no less special. We were an active cemetery up until 1966, when we were closed by Act of Parliament and redeclared a public park. So that's how we defend the heritage here, through managing it as a woodland nature reserve. We're the only woodland in the borough and the most urban woodland in London, and so we're all about creating a little piece of the countryside in the city. 
Now, walking round the cemetery, um, I noticed the architecture of the various graves. The architecture reflects the fashions of the time. They reflect people keeping up with the Joneses, all wanting to be seen, seen to be modern and up to date. So a lot of the monuments will be kind of neoclassical or Gothic. And then as you move towards our closure, they become much more kind of traditional, just a regular kind of rounded top stone or squared. But they, they do reflect fashions. On entering the cemetery, I did notice an attractive memorial. That's probably our war memorial you're referring to there. So it's kind of a half circle shape. So that's owned and managed by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And it remembers those from this particular area of Tower Hamlets who fought and died in either the First or Second World War. It was relocated in that position in the mid-1990s. So the original monument stood not quite far from us here, but was made from a stone that weathered poorly. It suffered from vandalism. So the Commonwealth War Graves Commission took the monument away um, with a view never to have one here again, but we challenged that decision. And then in 1993, we had the plaques returned in a new monument. How important is the park as opposed to the cemetery? The cemetery and the park, one doesn't really exist without the other because this reflects the diversity of East London. There are people from all over the world buried here, but it reflects that the community of East London has always changed. So the way we get people in to see that is by managing it as a park, having this little piece of the countryside in the city where people can enjoy unrivaled opportunities to see plants and animals. So the park is what people need. It's good for mental and physical well-being. It, can, it helps people feel better about where they live. And while we're here now, it's bird song yeah, that I'm having yeah. to raise my voice above. It's not traffic noise. I've swapped tower blocks for trees. And, you know, it's wildlife that are sharing their personal lives with me, not human beings. It is an oasis of calm. As you leave Roast, you immediately find yourself in the food paradise of Borough Market. Now administered by a charitable trust, there has been a market here since the 11th century. Open from Monday to Saturday, it's popular with tourists and locals as well as chefs and restaurateurs who not only come to sample and buy the local produce, but also for the unique atmosphere the market offers. And with its huge selection of tasty treats on offer, it's an easy and enjoyable place to consume more than the recommended daily calorie intake. The King's Cross area has undergone huge changes over the last decade, and Gasholder Park and Granary Square are probably the best examples of the improvements that have taken place. Project Director Anthony Peter. Welcome to Gasholder Park. Behind us we have the Gasholders London. Three interconnected Gasholder frames, which within it is a single residential building. We're about 500 metres away from St Pancras Station. We're right next to the Regents Canal, which is running past Gasholder Park, and we're within the actual heart of King's Cross Development. Anthony, I've known this area for over 25 years, driving a cab. Can you tell me something about the history of this land, what was here before? About 150 years ago, the rail first came to King's Cross. Uh, it brought a lot of the goods from the north of England, and it's the coal which started to define King's Cross as we now know it. These gas holders, which we're currently standing within, they were erected to take the coal and to process it and provide gas to a lot of London. What year were the original gas holders, or what period of time were they constructed? These gas holders were built in the 1850s. The site over the last hundred years or so was very active until probably the 1960s and 1970s where it starts to become more derelict. So what was the rationale in trying to sort of preserve it? Would it 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too. Like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. It'd been easier just to knock the whole thing down and start from scratch. Well, that would have been the easy option to knock everything down. But we were very keen to hold on to the heritage and the history of the area and retain that character. We've actually had to take down these gas holders. We've refurbished them, and they've taken about five years. So each individual component's been taken up to Yorkshire, stripping back the paint, replacing the corroded metal, and bringing them back to life. When it was originally built, had a large unit which used to inflate all the way right up to the top of these frames and then drop back down again as the gas pressure rose and, and dropped. Um, for us, what was a real challenge was having to remove the remnants of the industrial processes. So there was thick, gloopy tar below the ground. If you see, there's a thin band halfway up the column here. Yeah. Now, when the Victorians originally built it, there was a bolted connection within that column. And the way they constructed it is they would send a small child inside who would tighten up the bolts and fix it together. Now, when we came to refurbish these, we couldn't find any small children <laughs> to fit in there. So instead, we've had to insert bands on the outside. What else happens in this space? We use uh, this space and many other spaces for, for events throughout the whole year. Just recently, we've had a, a cider festival, uh, which was very popular. Uh, we've had fashion events, uh, catwalks. So a real range of different uh, activities just to really bring people to the site and give them a chance to experience what, what we've done here. Welcome to the Royal Docks. This area has seen a dramatic transformation over the last decade. I'm meeting with Mike Luddy to discuss the heritage and history of the area. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon. My name's Derek O'Reilly. I'm a London taxi driver. Could you tell me where we are? We're in the Royal Docks. I'm the managing director of the company who look after the Royal Docks. If you've been standing here 30, 40 years ago, you'd be looking 
at a dock full of ships. And this is what the Royal Docks were created for. They were created at a time when the other docks in London had become too small for the big, large, ironclad steamships. If you think this was all marshland before it was built, and without heavy machinery, they built these docks that are 13 metres deep. Can you imagine digging 13 metres down into the marshland and creating these huge spaces for docks for ships? And I just think it's an incredible piece of Victorian engineering. And they were created in three parts. So the dock in front of us now, this is Royal Victoria Dock, and that was the first dock to be built around about 1870. And behind us, where the Crystal Building is, used to be a lock that connected Royal Victoria Dock to the river. Four kilometres from here to the far end of the docks is the main lock today. And what was added over time were Royal Albert Dock, King George V Dock and Pontoon Dock. So by about 1920, these docks were absolutely booming and the whole of the area was dependent on the docks for work. And they lived in unbelievably uh, deprived conditions. Um, so the docks boomed in the 1920s, but as large containerized shipping came along, even these docks were too small to take ships at large. In fact, those ships couldn't get this far down river. So gradually, the Royal Docks started to decline. And by 1982, the last cargo ship came into the Royal Docks and they were closed. This caused tremendous problems for people in the area. And the London Docklands Development Corporation was uh, created at that point and their job was to try and help the area regenerate. And really what you see today is a result of those early plans that the London Docklands Development Corporation put together and, and plans that we've taken on with the Greater London Authority. We're quite keen not to lose that connection with the past. So we've been running a programme called Forgotten Stories. And the idea of that is that we realise that the generation that used to work here when this was a working docks are now very, very old. And we wanted to capture their stories about the Royal Docks so we didn't lose the history of this place. For example, what used to happen is all the ships would sound their horns on New Year's Eve and everyone would come out of their houses and wish each other um, Happy New Year. And we captured with a couple of people who were kids at the time of what it was like. And we found some sound footage of all the ships sounding their horns in the Royal Docks. It's incredible to hear all of the ships yeah. and you suddenly realise how many ships would have been in here. One of uh, the guys I've got to know pretty well tells the story of what this place was like during the Second World War. And if you think they estimate 25,000 bombs were dropped on the docks of London during the Second World War. And he remembers as a little boy coming out of the house and hearing all the ACAC guns going and all, all the barriers of guns that were all positioned around the Royal Docks. And the Royal Docks took a tremendous hammering during the Second World War. But these people were so tough and they would just pick themselves up and get on with work that was so vitally important for the war effort, including indeed building the temporary harbours for the Normandy invasions when they happened right. were built right here in the Royal Docks. So what we've been able to do is capture an archive of lots of really fascinating stories of what it was like around here. We can look around today, it, it looks amazing, but you know the history is what this place is all about and that's what we're know, really try to capture. The first thing that came here was an airport, believe it or not, and that's London City Airport, which is down in yep. the middle of the docks. We've got XL, which is the uh, big exhibition centre for London, and we've also got a university at the far end, University of East London. We're going to be doing all sorts of things here in the water, 
to try and encourage people to use this place as a destination uh, for leisure. Yeah. So we, we have a beach during the summer. We have all sorts of water sports going on. Even mad people tonight will be doing some open water swimming in that water in this sub-zero in this temperature. temperature. I know. <laughs> um, they've got to be nuts. But we have all sorts of things going on. Wakeboarding. We've got a big regatta centre down the far end. So sailing and canoeing and rowing going on. I mean, it's already got some great things to offer. And what we're going to be doing with the new developments is giving people even more reason to come out to the docks. So the, the whole idea is try and bring life back to this place and get people to come here and appreciate it for what it is. Mike, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure. I don't often get journeys out to the Docklands at the moment, but I'm hoping that that will improve and increase uh, with your future developments. to one of the most energetic places in King's Cross. Welcome to St Pancras Station. My name is Josie Murray and I'm the Senior Heritage Advisor for High Speed One. St Pancras is a very special building, a Grade One listed building, and there are only a small number of those in the country, such as Westminster Abbey and St Paul's Cathedral. Can we start with the gentleman who's beside me? Certainly, yes. This is, uh, let me introduce you to Sir John Betjeman poet laureate and writer who was a passionate supporter of the railways in England. And the reason that he's here in St Pancras is because he was one of the, the key figures that was responsible for ensuring that it wasn't demolished. And as a consequence of his actions, the station was listed Grade 1 in 1967. There must have been enormous challenges to build a station because it was quite built up at those days, wasn't it? Oh, it was a very built up area. I think the most significant challenge was how to deal with the Regent's Canal. William Henry Barlow decided to come over the top of the canal because that would also allow them greater flexibility to expand their operations if they wanted to. With the platforms being above street level, there was a big challenge to, to Barlow as to how to maximise that space. So rather than building that brick arch form to support the train deck, as you would have expected, mm -hmm. Barlow looked to the factories um, and industry up in the Midlands and the North. And originally there were nearly 700 cast iron columns um, that were used to support the train deck. Pretty soon it was realised that there was quite a commercial value to have that area of space in central London, not least to William Bass of the Bass Brewery Company in Burton, who was a shareholder in the Midland Railway Company. In the arcade area where we have the shops and the departures areas for Eurostar, that was once a massive storage area for beer. One of the things that Barlow said when he was talking about the station following its completion was that the size of the beer barrel dictated the whole grid of the station. So I'm sure there travels around the station, I notice there's an awful lot of shops and there are lots of people milling around. St Pancras is, is more than just a railway station, it's actually a destination in its own right. Um, we have a lot of visitors, we have nearly in excess of 50 million visitors a year. Wow. A huge number and, and a proportion of those don't come here to catch the train, they come to visit the restaurants and bars. We're currently going to be welcoming some new stores into the, into the station, Chanel, Calvin Klein, Ted Baker, alongside our existing favourites such as Fortnum and Mason's and Hamley's and John Lewis. So it's really important to us to, to offer something different. No, it seems a truly sort of unique space. There's a lot of artwork. What's the story behind that? 
it has been referred to in the past, particularly this train shed, as a work of art in itself. And HS1 invests in the arts because it reflects the character of the station, but also inspires and excites our visitors. It's unexpected. You don't expect to see art in the station. Every year, in partnership with the Royal Academy, our Terrace Wires programme engages with world-famous artists to create innovative and beautiful pieces. These installations sit alongside our permanent pieces, such as the, the Paul Day statue, the meeting place, which we're standing next to, and the Sir John Betjeman statue. There's excerpts of Betjeman's poetry have been inset into the flooring of the concourse. Oh, right, yes, yeah. We also have two pianos in the arcade that anyone can play, um, and we discover there's a huge amount of talented people that just love the opportunity to play the piano because the acoustics in the building are fantastic. And as a result, we've had people like Elton John, John Legend and Jules Holland have all come into the station to play our pianos. Well, Derek, I brought you here to this place because I think as a cab driver, you'll appreciate its significance. We're in what's now called the Eastern Arch, but it was in fact an exit. So customers, when they would arrive into St Pancras, would come by a cab from Euston Road and they'd come up the cab road and then they'd be dropped off and come into the booking office to buy their ticket and then onto the platform. The cabs, meanwhile, would have gone on a ramp down onto Midland Road, driven around the station and come up another ramp onto a large roadway which is directly behind this arch. And there the cabs would wait. So Midland Railway customers, if they could afford it, didn't have to go outside at all. Now, Josie, Standing here, I can see the roof. It's splendid. When the station opened, it was the largest single-span roof in the world. It was a huge engineering achievement and was much copied. In fact, the first Grand Central Station in New York is pretty much was pretty much a replica of St Pancras. All right. The train shed is nearly 700 foot long, 240 foot wide, and 100 foot high. So it's a massive, big space. And the roof shape itself, as you look at it, you'll see it has a point at the apex, and that allowed it to have a much greater span. Now, from the outset, St Pancras was designed to impress. It was a statement showcasing the best products from the Midland areas, and all of the materials in the station that were there for sort of public view were sourced from the Midlands area. Well, Derek, to finish our tour of the station, I've got a bit of a treat for you. We're going to go up on the roof. Oh, fantastic, Josie. Let's go. Okay. Josie, I've picked people up from this station in my taxi many times and I've dropped people here many times. I will never look at this station in the same way again. But I've got one last question I'd like you to answer. Okay. Who or what was St Pancras? Ah. St Pancras is actually a Greek name that means something that holds everything. So it's a very nice meaning. In terms of why the station's called St Pancras, we're situated in the parish of St Pancras in Camden. And St Pancras Church is just a short way up the road. Josie, you've answered all my questions I came here with today. Thank you so much for having me. The House of Illustration on Granary Square is a must-visit for all artists. I'm Olivia Ahmed, I'm curator here at House of Illustration, which is based in Granary Square. For a lot of people as an area of London they haven't visited before, but there's loads to do here. There are great restaurants, there are bars, lots of different public events happening, especially in the summer. 
The house illustration was set up by Quentin Blake, the um, really well-known artist and illustrator. It was set up in 2002 as an organisation and then we opened our first building here in Granary Square in 2014, so we're nearly three years old now. We're the only art gallery in the UK that specialises in illustration. Often illustration is commissioned, it's art with a job to do, and it's the kind of art that we see every day. So posters, in picture books, sometimes it might be a chart or an infographic explaining something in a newspaper, um, sometimes it might be background artwork for animation, which is something that we're showing at the moment. It takes lots of different forms, but it's very different from painting or sculpture. Um, so this gallery is really quite unique in showcasing that kind of work. We have a permanent gallery dedicated to the work of Quentin Blake and his archive. So Quentin's archive is 35,000 pieces now. He started working when he was 16. He had his first illustration published and he's still working today, uh, many years later. So um, we're always showing Quentin's work, but we pick different bits of his archive. We have 10 exhibitions every year and they're always completely different from each other. So coming up next year, we've got exhibitions about textile design, political satire, and we're commissioning some new artwork from up and coming illustrators as well. So at the moment, I'm working on an exhibition for later this year in September, which is work by Gerald Scarf, who's known as a political cartoonist for The Times and other newspapers. But actually, this is taking a totally different look at his work, and it shows his work for, as an animation designer for films like Disney's Hercules and Pink Floyd's The Wall, and also his work for theatre design. He's designed operas like The Magic Flute and ballets like The Nutcracker. Our current exhibition is called Anime Architecture and it's about the background artwork that you see in films from the 1980s and 1990s like Ghost in the Shell, um, Pat Labor and Metropolis. These are really um, kind of iconic Japanese animated films uh, and you see them on screen but they're actually, uh, the backgrounds are done by hand so that hundreds and hundreds of paintings are done by different people to make one film. We're a unique institution so we appeal to lots of different people. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.